Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, December the 9th. Not December, February the 9th. I can't even get my, uh, my months right these days. February the 9th, 2023. I have a small sample size here, but I'm going to make some generalizations anyway. Last week, uh, I talked to an Australian journalist, Julian Cribb, who believes that our planet is broken or environmentally, politically, culturally, and above all else, economically, he has a new book out, How to Fix a Broken Planet, Advice for Surviving the 21st Century. And central to Cribb's argument was the role of the United Nations. Uh, as I said, my sample size is small, but I got another Australian on the show today. This one is called Roland Rich. He teaches at Rutgers University. He's a former United Nations man. He ran the uh, United Nations Democracy Fund for a while. And like uh, Julian Cribb, he has a book out about the problems with our world. And like Cribb, he believes that the United Nations, or at least the idea of the United Nations, is a fix. His new book is called The United Nations as Leviathan. And Roland is joining us from New York City. Roland, what is it about Australians and the UN? Well, Australia has had a long history with uh, both the League of Nations and the UN, so that may have something to do with it. Well, it's interesting you bring up the League of Nations. I did a show uh, earlier today with the great American uh, foreign policy expert, Robert Kagan. He has a new book out, The Ghost and the Feast, about the collapse of the world order uh, between 1900 and 1941, which, of course, the League of Nations played a central role or the failure of the League of Nations played a central role in. Do you think that the United Nations these days is in crisis? And is that both a cause and an effect of all our various crises around the planet? OK, L let me try to deal with that difficult question by starting um, on where we're at. Um, the subtitle of my book is Global Governance in the Post-American World. And, and the post-American world is the world that the United States created, that Kogan refers to as being the, the world that the United States created after World War II, a, a world order based on institutions and rule of law. And although not not articulated as such, but in reality, guaranteed by the United States. Um, and that world, we are at, at, at a hinge in history. That world is receding. And we are now starting to look at a different world uh, that's coming forward. And frankly, what we're seeing is not very attractive. A and... Um, my book is an attempt to put forward a vision of a world where we somehow drill down on the issue of a rules-based world with global governance. Andrew, let me make a quick and important point here. It's not global government. I, I just can't conceive of it. I just don't think it's possible. But what we need is global governance 
we need to have some entity that can provide the governance required in a world where, whereas once the problems were national, now all our problems, just about all our problems are global. And we need um, a, an entity, we need a, a form of governance to, to be available to us. And that's in fact why I've borrowed Thomas Hobbes um, uh, a term, not, not that I mean it the same way Thomas Hobbes does, but I've borrowed the Thomas Hobbes concept of the Leviathan. Yeah, um, so we'll get to the Leviathan and, and the yeah. Hobbesian element. I think you're, you know, I'm very sympathetic in many ways to your thesis, Roland. I think you're right that we are edging into a post-American world, but it's nonetheless a world of nation states. Uh, the, clearly, the next Cold War is one between the United States and China. Um, if anything, in the 21st century, nation states are, or at least states, are stronger. Russia, China, Iran, India, the United States, Brazil. So I, I take your point about the problems in the world being global, but the political structures are still national. Um, and isn't that the fundamental contradiction here? It's a difficulty not a contradiction insofar as the United Nations has lived with the, a, a world of sovereign states since its beginning. And um, although the United Nations has not been able to impose itself fully, there are lots of examples where in fact, um, international rules have become the dominant rules in the field. Um, often in, in areas where we simply take it all for granted. I, I think one of the strengths of my book, if I may say, um, is that having been a practitioner for nearly all my life, um, I try to look at practical, imaginable solutions to problems. And in um, my Leviathan book, the, the nation state does not wither away does not disappear. Great powers remain great powers, but they have to deal with a much more significant entity in the form of what I call the UN 3.0. Um, we've had the League of Nations 1.0. We've got currently the UN Which was a disaster, um, the League of Nations. So let, let, let's talk about the UN. I'm just... Uh, of course, everybody knows about the United Nations, uh, headquartered in the New York. I've actually spoken there. I mean, look at some headlines today. Uh, the head of the UN, Antonio Guterres, is warning that uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict might break out into a wider war. And yet at the same time, um, Russia has asked uh, Roger Waters, former pop star and a Putin apologist to speak on Ukrainian weapons at the UN. Lots of other headlines about the UN, most of which seem kind of obscure. Let me ask you a very simple question, Roger. You, uh, not Roger, Roland. Uh, you imply that the UN has achieved considerable amounts, certainly more than the League of Nations, which isn't saying much. What, what has it done in the last 50 years? Well, um, in the field of global health, 
it's eliminated diseases. It's brought the the um, child mortality rate down to very you know small proportions. I mean, the UN has been a critical player in lifting the standards of living of countries around the world, and you can see. Well, hold on, hold on. Wait, 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 how you've you've suggested yeah. the UN has eliminated diseases? Maybe well, that's true. It, it does. It has eliminated well, some. How, how has it raised the living? How has it well, raised uh, economic um, uh, yeah. the, the quality of life around the world in economic terms? Yeah. The so, UN Andrew, in particular. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to say that, you know, the UN has somehow done this alone. Um, but, you know, I'll give you one example. Uh, um, one of the most important requirements and one of the few current and, and necessary rules of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights is that there must be primary education for all, girls and boys. And although there are, of course, some egregious examples where this has not happened, largely throughout the world, this has happened as a, as a response to the UN's rule on that point. And, and my argument would be that that level of education around the world has been a critical factor in allowing countries to raise their standards of living. What about, uh, you know, I, I wish I could be as optimistic as, as you, Roland, but um, what about the political failures of the United Nations? Uh, what, what can we learn from the experience of the UN in terms of building, to borrow your, your phrase, uh, a, a UN 3.0 for the 21st yeah. century? Okay. Um, you know, you, you asked me questions about what the UN 2.0 has done. And, and in my book, I do, you know, concede that um, UN 2.0 has done a number of important things in a number of important areas. But my argument is it is not fit for purpose for the problems we are now engaging in. And, um, and, and therefore, you know, the, the last thing I want to do is to defend the UN as it is. My argument is we need to fundamentally transform the UN. Um, and, and um, you know, to do so is to then deal with issues that the world is confronting. And let me quickly say, Andrew, I'm not sure that even a Leviathan, even a UN 3.0, can bring peace to everybody on earth. Um, the reality is that states will continue to exist and that we will continue to have outbreaks of war. But although we, it's not a recipe for world peace, a Leviathan UN will become a much more significant voice even in that field. So I take your point, um, Roland. So coming back to the, the failures of, of, of the UN 2.0, what can we learn in terms of building this, 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 this new version, if, if, if it's yeah. to happen, the Leviathan version that you want to create? Okay. So I ask myself, I ask in the book that question, what is the UN 2.0's greatest strength and what's its greatest weakness? And oddly enough, I end up with the same answer, member states. That's, of course, a term that, that comes uh, um, from the UN Charter. 
uh, the UN Charter calls um, the participants in the UN drama member states, but actually that's a misnomer. Who is represented at the UN? It's executive branches of governments. That's who's represented, claiming to represent member states. And the weakness of the UN is the fact that these governments, these executive branches of governments, have a range of different uh, um, characteristics from democratic to totalitarian, um, from pseudo-democratic to authoritarian, from military regimes to personalistic regimes to narco-regimes. They are the entities that are represented at the UN. And, and that's the main problem, that the UN is run by these people. Um, I argue that we need three general assemblies. One remains for the executive branches of government as is, but we need two further assemblies, one for business and one for civil society. That will now represent humanity in a way that it hasn't been represented before. And um, those three assemblies will then deal with the global agenda in a way that will bring some realism to what we're doing. Um, I, I, I'm happy to go oh, into so I, uh, You know, I take the point and it's interesting and I, but it, it seems so, seems so unrealistic on so many levels. Firstly, even if you got what you wanted, it sounds to me like you'd get an even larger bureaucracy. And one of the problems with the United Nations is it's become this bloated bureaucracy. Secondly, as you've suggested, many of the governments around the world, and you know this better than I do, you used to run the UN Democracy Fund, are, um, are authoritarian. Some of them are totalitarian. So how are you going to get civil society represented from Iran or China or Russia at the United Nations? And even your second category, business, doesn't seem to be very feasible. And even if it was, I mean, who who wants a whole category dominated by Microsoft and, and Google and Lockheed Martin? Well, let me make some points here. Um, I thought you were going to ask the harder question of how we get there, but I, let me answer the question. Well, let's of what get the, to that first. But even even in an ideal sense, even even before we talk about how to get there. How, how realistic is this? Yeah. So um, the two other assemblies will not be Westphalian. They won't, they won't be one civil society organization from each nation or one business from each nation. No. They will have their own logic that, that re represents civil society and the, the corporate world as it is. Um, and, 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 of course, that means that there will be parts of the world that are not well represented in relation to civil society and the business community. But what will be represented are those two sectors in, our, in, in the world. Um, and um, I propose a, a, um, a process whereby um, a small group, 15 in each, actually becomes the designer of the rules for each of those assemblies and the rules for how one becomes a member of that assembly. Um, and this is a, a process of self-governance. 
in the field of civil society and the business community. One little wrinkle I make in relation to the business community, Andrew, is um, because I, I know from my students with whom I speak on this issue, that is a very unpopular part of the, uh, um, of the design. One wrinkle I make is that the significant philanthropic bodies that have emerged from the business community, like the Gates Foundation, for example, are counted as part of the business community. And I, I see this as a way of somehow uh, uh, bringing a, a, a form of um, agenda setting to the business community beyond simply the profit. Okay, market. so uh, I accept that, and that certainly is an important caveat. But coming back to this issue of civil society, I mean, if, if, if this thing has any degree of, of realism, how could you possibly have a new United Nations where, given that there, there's, there's no way in which the people of China or Iran or Russia or many other countries can represent themselves, how, how could the civil society thing work? Wouldn't it be dominated again by the United, the United States and, and other Western democracies? Okay, um... You know, when I worked at the UN Democracy Fund, um, I sort of saw the reality of civil society and, and much of it has lost its national origins and certainly has lost any form of national agenda. Um, we, we have um, large numbers of very active civil society organizations in the world that have their own logic. Uh, you know, to give an example, Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, um, doctors Without Borders. It doesn't follow any logic of any nation, doesn't follow any sort of policy ideas. It has a, a um, cosmopolitan view of the world and acts that way. And, and Andrew, I would say that a large number, the vast number of the large civil society organizations are in that camp. They bring us a view of the world that is far more relevant to the problems of the world. They see the world as a global space and they act in that global space. And, and you know, China will have representation on the civil society uh, um, assembly once it has civil society, but it doesn't have civil society now. In fact, it is squashing civil society and therefore it has no representation. In any case, civil society is not a Westphalian body. It's not, it's not nations represented there. It's concepts and theories and ideas about how the world should be organized as non-governmental, yeah, not for profit I mean, I, I, I suspect that you will need, if, if this thing ever gets off the ground, you will need China a lot more than China will need it. But anyway, let's come back to... Let's come back to your, your, your point about how to get there. You, 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 you talk about Hobbes. Uh, the book is called uh, uh, The United Nations as Leviathan. So obviously very clear reference to, uh, to, to Hobbes' great work, which is one of the foundations of the modern nation state. How can we learn from Hobbes in terms of building this next generation United Nations? Well, the analogy I'm making is with... London of the 17th century, which was such a, a lawless place of all against all and in, in which uh, um, uh, there was no overarching authority that protected individuals. And, and Hobbes called for just such an authority um, and, and asked people to accept 
a Leviathan for the purposes of um, the security of the people around him and, and for himself. Um, now, you know... Well, hold on, Roland. I, I don't want to give you a history lesson here, but that was not the foundations of the Leviathan. Hobbes wrote the Leviathan as a direct response to the English Civil War. Uh, yes. It may have been violence in London, but it wasn't urban violence as we understand it. So Leviathan came about as a consequence of civil war. And, but, but he wanted a, a, an authority that would protect the people. And, and he wanted the people to accept the Leviathan as a, methods of, a method of having this sort of protection. Now, I'm not asking for a Hobbesian Leviathan to exist in the 21st century. I'm just taking the analogy insofar as we live in a chaotic and anarchic international system. And um, we, we see that the current governance that we have has very little impact on this uh, form of, of uh, um, anarchy and, uh, that we're living with. It has some impact, but insufficient impact. And so my argument is we need a Leviathan in the 21st century that will provide the sort of governance services that we currently lack. Now, let me quickly make the point that a 21st century Leviathan um, is, not, is not like a 17th century Leviathan and is not a Weberian government. That is, it has no pretense to having a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Um, you know, that's why it's not a government and it doesn't pretend to so be. How will it work? I mean... Hobbes grappled with this, and, and he wrote his masterpiece, Leviathan, which not everyone loves, but I think everyone acknowledges that it's a great work. He recognized that the only way that you could have peace is through fear. How can you replicate fear in the 21st century um, yeah. in a way that will encourage people or force people, perhaps, to... Um, acknowledge the legitimacy of the United Nations, whether it's a formal power or having power, it nonetheless needs to acknowledge, it needs to be acknowledged. Otherwise, it's just another idea that won't work and is, is a first. Okay, it's, it's a great question. Um, and, and I don't use the term fear um, as such, but I accept completely what you're saying. And here's where the fear factor comes in. We have a fear that we are living in what will soon be an unlivable planet. We have a fear of um, up to, and this is a, a UN university study, one billion refugees when the, when the climate emergency goes, you know, even further than it has so now. So you sound in this way, you're very much on uh, Julian Cribb's uh, page, How to Fix a Broken Planet. So go on. In, in so far as I accept the brokenness of the planet, and that's what we all fear. Um, we, we fear the next pandemic. Um, we saw how the WHO was such a, a weak um, entity in dealing with the last one. Um, and and so, Roland, I fear my own death. That doesn't make mean that the United Nations as a Leviathan is going to be able to avert my own death. I mean, fear is, a, is, is the reality of the human condition, for better or worse. But, but now we fear 
global crises as being just around the corner and as the 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 form of the book you just showed very imaginable no longer theoretical uh, um we we see it as coming around the corner and, and i teach you know as a as i teach these days and i can see it in my students uh, um they're living in a world that they where they fear they even fear to have children in this world so that's the fear we're talking about but but it's a fear that we can actually do something about but what we have to do is borrow the analogy from hobbs and try to turn the un into the leviathan it can't solve all these problems but it can govern and manage them in a way that will somehow allow us to deal with them intelligently and not the way we're dealing with them now i wonder whether the most realistic and i'm not sure this is particularly realistic the only way you're really going to get your your un 3.0 if it, if the planet is invaded by another species or another form of life because otherwise the fear you talk about you might find it in the classrooms at Rutgers it seems to be a feature of the upper middle classes in America but it it's not really true around the world most people still want running water and more food and 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 a better quality of life so i don't actually buy the idea that most of the world is as fearful as you suggest um the climate emergency is going to get much more severe um and um you know um there's a there's a science fiction book and I, i've just forgotten the author's name for a moment um talks about how the seas will rise not gradually millimeter by millimeter but in major pulses that will completely disrupt um coastal societies around the world you know that's what we're facing yeah and I, and i think maybe there's some truth to that and then if we want to look for lessons from history we have to understand of course that you know the league of nations 1.0 came out of the first world war was a massive failure which resulted in the second world war the un whose charter you waived was written by eleanor roosevelt um uh, came out of the second world war we still need a major disaster the kind of disaster that you're describing it hasn't happened yet has it roland it 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 hasn't happened yet but it's just around the corner i mean in geological time it's happening is it really though i mean even even if some coastal zones get flooded do you think that it will have the equivalent impact of the second world war well nearly every major city is on the coast nearly every major city is on the coast some wealthy cities will find partial technological solutions uh, um but the the vast majority will not and we're going to see an enormous climate refugee crisis which will be deeply destabilizing roland um, you ran the un democracy fund um and and i think your thesis is actually really interesting and really relevant but i wonder where where's the democracy in this you you talk about that the, these three categories governments which tend to around the world to be less and less democratic these days business and non-profits and civil society which sound to me to be just another version of non-profits where's the voice of the people in this new version of the un where's democracy yeah um look 
democracy lives in the nation state in the in the politics that we know to date. Um, I am not convinced that we can scale up democracy to the global level. I, I just don't see how it, we can do it. Um, and I know that some have imagined it and some have, I mean, there was even a, a group that sort of held an election on the same day in every country in the world in one sort of polling booth to prove it can physically happen, but that's not really the point. But what we're going to get with the three assemblies is are, are some of the fruits that you get from democracy. We're going to get a certain level of representation we do not have now beyond the executive branches of government. We're going to get contestation in policy that we don't have now because governments form a club and they all agree on how things should work for their benefit. And, and we're going to get a much higher standard of accountability. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the UN Democracy Fund. We had civil society groups on our governing board. And what I used to say to them was, your job is to watch what the others do. That's part of the accountability structure you get. So what we don't get, we don't get a form, any form of direct democracy, but we get some of the benefits that democracy does bring. Um, and, and I have a chapter on human rights and democracy where I talk about what the UN can do in relation to national democracy, um, what the UN can do in relation to both human rights and democracy at the national level. And that's been one of the areas where the UN has, um, especially in human rights, has been active, not as successful, obviously, as it wishes to be. But, you know, if you look at the span of 75 years, um, a lot of things have happened in that domain, um, far fewer in the democracy side. But I believe the UN only UN 3.0, of course, can assert a certain influence on national human rights and democracy processes. How? Um, one, of the, one of the ideas that governments will really dislike and people with a lot of, uh, um, uh, who believe in national ego will, dis will dislike a lot, but it draws on a, on a precedent from the UN Security Council um, whereby the UN became the authority that actually authorized the result of a national election. Now, admittedly, this was in a post-conflict situation. But my argument is the UN should be the authorizing authority for all elections around the world. Yeah, I wonder, because Roland, uh, you know, it's an interesting argument, but... Maybe the reverse is true. Maybe rather than some global government, we simply need more local stuff. It seems as if it's local in, in the United States, democracy is in crisis, but it's at the local and the state level that things are beginning to improve and be reformed. Uh, could we reverse all this and put an end to all this uh, utopian talk of the United Nations and simply focus on politics at the local level? Yeah, well... I don't like utopia, and this is not a utopian book. Uh, well, it um, is. It is. Let's be honest. For better or worse, it is utopian. It's not. No, we're not creating utopia. We 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 are trying to manage foreseeable. You're imagining problems. something that seems 
incredibly unrealistic. I think the people in the league would have seen the UN as completely unrealistic and unimaginable. Uh, um, and so just because we're in UN 2.0 doesn't mean we can't imagine a UN 3.0. When it, it's these things will feed off each other. Um, you know, better governance at the global level will clearly allow for better governance at the local level. Uh, um, and and there's no, they're not in competition. They're not in competition. They are, if anything, more symbiotic. 